Welcome back to Dealing Together. First caller? I bought three sweaters to get the fourth free. Oh, you got fleeced. Next caller? I traded my old Samsung at AT&T for a new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus and chose my plan. That's not a bad deal. It is not. Our best smartphone deals. Your choice of plan. Learn how to get the new Samsung Galaxy S24 Plus with Galaxy AI on us with eligible trade-in. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Offers vary by device. Subject to change. S24 plus 256 gigabyte offer available for a limited time. Terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash Samsung for details. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at Exo. J-A-C-Q-U-I.com. Made for women by women. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says money don't get everything. It's true, but what it don't get, I can't use. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about a topic related to economics, yes. something that we have, I, I would say we've brushed up against it before uh, on this show when we talked about Star Trek economics in the Ooh, past yeah, and yeah. Some, uh, some other issues related to automation. But today we thought it would be a good time to jump headfirst into the topic of the basic income. Yeah, I almost think of this as like a a stepping stone, if you will, toward that Star Trek future where money no longer is a thing except when the plot requires it to be. <laughs> oh, right, right. Or, I mean, for Ferengi, who just really like it. Yeah, the but... latinum, the pressed <laughs> latinum. Yeah, yeah. You know? And it's been a topic of our conversation because as artificial intelligence and robotics become more advanced and less expensive, robots are going to take our jobs, specifically our tedious, dangerous, and damaging hard labor type jobs. Especially those those will happen first. Oh, no yeah. No question about it. Uh-huh. Others 
will follow. <laughs> that's that's kind of the scary thing, isn't it? Like uh, one of the things I want to talk about later in this episode is a paper that I've referenced in a couple of things I've written for How Stuff Works that came out in 2013 by the Oxford researchers uh, Carl Benedict Fry and Michael A. Osborne. Mm-hmm. And this paper is essentially a big look at where the the future trends in automation are going to be, what jobs are going to be taken over by machines and by computer software. And uh, as we record this podcast, Lauren and I are actually preparing to fly to Austin, Texas, to attend South by Southwest 2016. Uh, Yeah, by the time you hear this, it will have already happened. Yeah, so we're giving you the future of the past right now. But one of the things that we both noticed as we looked at the different track programming, uh, uh, you know, lists on South by Southwest, which is an enormous conference that's interactive, film, music, tons of different stuff going on there. But one of the really big topics that we saw coming up again and again was this idea of automation. How is that going to impact the job market? And how is that going to impact things like income? And so that's very much in line with what we're going to talk about today. Uh, yeah. So if you want to listen to a couple of those prior episodes that we've done, uh, tune in to one from December of 2014 called Will Robots Steal Our Jobs? Um, and then two from July of 2015 called Hailing the RoboCab and Robot Taxis and the Future of Cab Drivers. Uh, and I don't have the, the, the episode title and date for the Star Trek economy episode right in front of me. It's I the knew... only one we did on the Star Trek. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So just Google Star Trek economy. I have faith in you. Um, but, but to, to summarize what we said there, you know, in the long term, this is great. Like what an incredible future, y'all. Like no one has to clean toilets or drive cargo trucks or turn and burn burgers or like mine toxic heavy metals unless they're really psyched about it. Um, in the short term, this is going to lead to so many growing pains and stands to specifically disenfranchise the people who are already living below the poverty line, even though they're working full time because those are the kind of jobs that are going to go first. Right. Yes. And one reaction to this trend, and I should say it's not just a reaction to the automation trend, but it's a it's an idea that is bigger than a reaction to automation, but may specifically come into play because of automation Mm -hmm. is the basic income, what's known as a a guaranteed basic income. So I want to start with a little news story that was the basis of a of a How Stuff Works Now video I shot earlier this week about the 2016 Ontario provincial budget. So Ontario is a province of Canada. Mm-hmm. It's their largest province. It's uh, home to almost 14 million people. Mm-hmm. And they released their budget online. And it uh, in Chapter 1, Section E, Towards a Fair Society, they write, and I'm just going to read a longish quote here, but bear with me for a minute. One area of research that will inform the path of comprehensive reform will be the evaluation of a basic income pilot. The pilot project will test a growing view at home and abroad that a basic income can build on the success of minimum wage policies and increases in child benefits by providing more consistent and predictable support in the context of today's dynamic labor market. I like that term dynamic. That seems kind of euphemistic, but hmm. uh, I like that they spell labor with a U. Oh, yes. As opposed uh, to volatile or something like right. that. Yeah, it's, it's so dynamic. <laughs> Unsafe. It's exciting. Terrifying. Yeah. That would be another great word. Uh-huh. <laughs> this rickety old roller coaster is dynamic. <laughs> uh, but anyway, continuing with the quote, 
The pilot, and they're referring to the basic income pilot project, the pilot would also test whether a basic income would provide a more efficient way of delivering income support, strengthen the attachment to the labor force, and achieve savings in other areas such as health care and housing supports. The government will work with communities, researchers, and other stakeholders in 2016 to determine how best to design and implement a basic income pilot. And this seemed really interesting to me because essentially... Th- with this budget statement, the provincial government is announcing its intention. You you might note that there aren't a lot of specifics here yet, sure. so we'll have to see what actually comes of this. But they're at least announcing their intention to do science on the governmental level. They want to run an experiment to right. see what happens when you try this new form of economics. And find out whether or not... It actually is efficacious. If so, does it make sense considering the the amount of investment required to to make it happen? Uh, sure. And and what kind of less numbers based qualifiers wind up coming out of it? Like like how how does it impact people's happiness and people's productivity? Yeah. Right. Good point. So we we should start with the definition, I guess. Yeah. What is a basic income and how is it different from all the other types of welfare and social security that that are already in place in governments all around the world? Mm -hmm. Uh, So there are a few different details and qualifications you could run variations on. You know, there there are different ways to slice the pie. But in essence, the, the idea of a basic income is there's a government payout that's awarded to all citizens without restrictions on use, without means testing. And it's th- these latter two parts of it that make it so different from most Social Security-type programs today. So governments already have a lot of programs that award financial assistance, but maybe you're only supposed to spend it on certain types of food items, like you, you're you only really supposed to spend it on food, like food stamps. Or maybe you only get it if you're over a certain age, or maybe you only get it if you're under a certain income, or if you're unemployed but actively seeking work, or, or you know, any number of conditions, if right. your family structure is a certain way. Mm-hmm. The basic income, on the other hand, is it strips away all of that. Right. It is an unconditional direct payout of money that every citizen receives. Right. And anything on top of that, you would get based upon your employment or lack thereof. Yeah. So So, you work, you get it. You don't work, you get it. Right. You're young, you get it. You're old, you get it. It doesn't matter. Every citizen gets the basic payout. Right. And ideally, the basic payout is somewhere in the level where you can see to very basic necessities, uh, at at least, Mm -hmm. at the very least. Um, not necessarily some basic income things I've seen. It, it's more along a, a small stipend that could offset your expenses. It doesn't necessarily take care of the basic needs, even at that level. And in some cases, I've seen people argue for, advocate for a basic income that goes above what you would need for the the most essential necessities. Uh, to get you above the poverty line. Right. Uh, which I believe in the United States at any rate equals a little bit over 11 grand a year right now. Uh, I think it, it can be calculated different ways depending on how many dependents you have. Uh, and okay, stuff like absolutely. That. And I, and honestly, I didn't look up the most recent number. Right. The, the one that in, sounds two, close in 2012, it was somewhere between 11 and $12,000 for, yeah. uh, and that'll come into play in a little bit later in our, our conversation as well. Right. So obviously, as I've said, you, you can tinker with the idea. You can mm-hmm. offer different variations on it. There, there's no 
one idea everybody agrees on, but that's the basic idea. Right. It's a direct, unconditional payout of money that you can spend however you want and everybody gets it. Uh, but th- there are questions you can mess with, like should the payout be graduated according to your other income? Like should the poorest people get a bigger payout than people who have more money? I don't know. You might be able to argue one way or another. Uh, do you give the payout to adults only? Like legal adults. Or, yeah, or only to uh, or to everybody, including dependent children. Right. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned uh, this new idea. It's really the interesting thing is it's not that new of an idea. It's just it's one that we're starting to hear a it's lot of buzz about right now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to look at maybe the origins of this idea or people who advocated for something similar in years past, you can look all the way back to the 16th century, early 1500s, with Thomas More. What a guy. You know, this is not the place we want to go if you're trying to make the case that the universal basic income is not necessarily utopianism. <laughs> right. Because Thomas More was explicitly utopianism. Yes, yes. In fact, he wrote on the subject quite extensively. Uh, he was a humanist and uh, he advocated an idea similar to basic income, though specifically intended for the poor, as opposed to a universal basic income that would go to every single citizen of whatever country. Mm-hmm. He was specifically looking at England, uh, but also did numerous uh, – uh, he wrote a lot about the various countries in, in Europe at the time and talked about the idea of this minimum income. He argued that the minimum income would uh, – minimum income, let me, let me enunciate properly – would create a greater social benefit than it would create a burden – for uh, the the state, the government, to pay this out. His argument was that if people are not making enough money, they end up turning to theft in order to meet their basic needs. And then we end up spending resources capturing them and punishing them, often killing them, which removes them from being able to make any sort of social contribution at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are curious about that set of situations, you can go listen to our Future of Burials episode, which was just last week. So he argued that with a minimum income, you remove the the necessity for theft and you remove the necessity for punishment and removing people from the possibility of contributing to society and uh, everyone benefits as uh, a result. Yeah. And, and for, furthermore, you know, if, if you really care about human life, you, you remove the necessity of the state at, at that time to, you know, kill people to, right. to commit murder. He also ad- he also admittedly said maybe killing people for what amounts to petty theft is a little excessive. That was a radical idea at the time of Thomas More. Uh, now, the notion evolved over time. Lots of other people ended up contributing to this idea and and tweaking it or adding different ideas that ended up kind of being folded into the concept of basic income later on. In the 18th century, we started seeing the idea of basic endowment, which was sort of a precursor of life insurance. Uh-huh. The idea being that if, uh, for example – a a the the person who provided for a family were to die would there be a, a system in place in order to keep that family sustained now that the person who was responsible for providing has passed away that kind of concept uh, then in the 19th century utopian socialists began to argue for what would become basic income it was still a very early version of that at that time the notion was that People were really moving into cities and there was this kind of this this idea that the earth is there for all of us, right? That we all have an equal share of the earth 
But we don't all have equal ability to reap the benefits of our share,、uh, especially if we're moving into cities and therefore, you know, can't hunt or farm or、exactly. something like that. Right. So we might not be able to benefit, and someone else may be able to benefit well beyond their quote unquote share of the earth. And so it was kind of a, an argument that there needed to be this redistribution in some ways, just for basic survival. Again, not meant to. Have someone thrive at the expense of someone else, which actually is what was going on already. <laughs> but, but to to make sure that people who were having difficulty meeting their basic needs could, in fact, meet them through this philosophical argument, and、uh, that was really interesting. Then, moving on to the twentieth century, philosophers began to argue for a more refined approach.、Uh, Bertrand Russell in Roads to Freedom. Suggested that a secured minimum income sufficient for meeting the basic necessities for a person's survival should be available to everyone. Larger incomes would be available to those willing and able to do more work. So、mm-hmm. those who contribute more to society get more out of it. So it's not you know, people sometimes equate basic income with concepts like communism, but that's not what. Russell was arguing. He was arguing, no. If you if you do work, you should be rewarded for that work. We're talking about a baseline income everyone gets. Yeah. Beyond that, you, you can, can earn make as、more. much as you want on top of it. Yeah. It's all it comes down to your willingness to actually work and contribute to society. And those who do more earn more.、Uh, so that's kind of an interesting、uh, idea that I think appeals to a lot of people on a very basic level. Now, as we go into discussing more about basic income, you'll understand that. Things that intellectually sound very simple in reality turn out to be insanely complicated. Yeah, well,、Economics. in reality, in reality, there is no such thing as simple. That's sort of what reality means. Yeah, I guess so.、Uh, nonetheless, there are several places that have been experimenting with implementing a program like this. Yeah, so we mentioned that the、uh, the Ontario budget statement has announced that it has intentions to look into it. Uh, but there's also there are also activists in Switzerland who have managed、mm. to get、uh, a version of basic income, sort of、uh, at least up for a vote. I mean, if it has any chance of actually becoming the law, I don't know. But it's 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 on the table、right. in Switzerland,、uh, and it's also I know been discussed in Finland and in communities in the Netherlands. Uh, and you mentioned in your now video that that、uh, Quebec has also been thinking about. Yeah, there's been discussion about it. Okay.、Uh, yeah. So. So, what's the appeal of having a basic income today?、Uh, well,、uh, as we've kind of been discussing, there's a lot of social issues that could potentially be alleviated by this. You know, homelessness, hunger, petty crime, maybe even connected issues like criminal violence,、uh, gang and mob activity, substance abuse, poor mental health, and you know, related issues like domestic abuse,、uh, and the, the the general category of like citizens' lack of health insurance, creating this undue taxpayer burden through the the overuse of emergency medicine rather than the health. And cheaper preventative medicine that people with you know money can access.、Mm-hmm. Um, it could also potentially boost the economy. Yeah, it sounds、um, like a kind of Keynesian perspective there. <laughs> sure, sure. The you know the, the effects of this kind of thing on economies are always unpredictable because there's just so many factors at play. You know, the economy is is like a like a version of the weather that for me is a lot less fun to think about. Right.、Um, but. You know, it, it seems likely that there would be a stimulus effect short term as people receive new spending power, and there's certainly a possibility that the effect would continue long term. And one、yeah. of those, so people have money to spend, they、right. spend it. Businesses make more money; they hire more people. 
one mm-hmm. of the arguments specifically about boosting the economy falls down on that that not falls down but uh, is specifically directed at the homelessness problem saying that it is extremely difficult to to break out of that problem of mm-hmm. homelessness that this would address that and that people who were homeless would have the money to uh end up getting a a roof over their heads and from that baseline they're much more likely to succeed in becoming a contributing member of society uh that without that the the cards are so stacked against them it's it's incredibly remarkable when someone's able to to emerge to pull themselves out right. yeah sure you know cuz cuz if you can't take a shower it's harder to get a job yeah and etc um but uh, all of our our personal like quasi socialism uh, fuzzy wuzzy feelings about all of this aside there are also lots of conservatives who have been talking about this as a as a potentially good plan oh yeah i mean this idea actually does have conservative support certainly not among all conservatives but mm-hmm. there have been conservatives who backed it one of the main reasons is that it's a government reducing plan, essentially. Mm-hmm. So right now you have a whole bunch of different means tested social security and welfare measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you have massive administrations and bureaucracies to oversee how these funds are given out and to make sure that they're they're given to the right people and that people aren't trying to game the system by getting funds that they're not supposed to get by trying to falsify or commit fraud mm-hmm. and you know it's it, there's there's massive systems in place just trying to hold everything together to meet the requirements and what if you just get rid of all the requirements no more means testing no no, no more any of this it's just everybody gets the payout mm-hmm. That that's a that is a government reduction, and so it replaces bureaucracy with a simple egalitarian system of social security. And in fact, uh, there there's one instance. This is not exactly basic income, but along the same lines, the economist Milton Friedman, who's usually considered a, a libertarian or some form of economic conservative, uh, talked about the idea of a negative income tax, and this is essentially a uh, two-way inverted progressive taxation. So the more money you make, the more taxes you pay. But also below a certain threshold, that uh, that tax tax fee inverts to a payout rather than a fee. Mm. Huh. So you are you receive money from the government rather than paying in. Uh, in 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 the 1960s, uh, Richard Nixon actually proposed a version of basic income. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. So it's it's we should also point out that while. Uh, you know, this is not this is not simply a liberal versus conservative issue mm-hmm. that there are supporters on both sides. There are also critics on both sides. Oh, exactly. Sure. And that, that's uh, that's a very good thing to point out. So one of the most obvious criticisms, but something worth talking about in a little bit of detail is how do you pay for it? Sounds like if you're giving everybody money, you need to have a lot of money to give them. And well, where do you get it? Well, yeah. sure. Like, like, how, but how much money are we talking about? Yeah, that that's worth talking about. So uh, here we go. There is a November 12th, 2013 piece by a guy named Danny Vinnick in Business Insider that did some math on this, actually, to just crunch some numbers to see roughly how much something like this would cost in the United States at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he was working off of 2012 numbers from the budget and the census. And uh, what he came up with was that from the 2012 numbers, if you wanted to pay every adult in the United States between the ages of 21 and 65, and he excluded over 65 because that's when Social Security ki- kicks in and that's a different that's a different paying pool, so they'd just be getting Social Security, 21 to 65 – 
uh, if you wanted to pay all those people an amount equal to the poverty line, which at the time he said was $11,945, it would cost $2.14 trillion. Whew. That's a, that's a that's lot a, of cheddar. That's a chunk of change. Yeah. It is. Uh, and, and he offers a point of comparison just to say, okay, $2.14 trillion, how much is that compared to other big chunks of the U.S. federal budget? Well, at the time, GDP was $16 trillion, So that's the the, fal- the value of all final goods and services produced in the United States was mm-hmm. $16 trillion. So this would be uh, like a an little, eighth of yeah, that. Yeah, a little more than one-eighth of Ugh. all the value of goods and services produced in the United States. Uh, but at the same time, the U.S. military budget was $700 billion. So, I mean, the government spends a lot of money in the United States. Well, wait, 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 Joe. The, you were talking earlier, though, that the conservatives were pointing out that this approach also is about streamlining government. Right. So it wouldn't just be $2.14 trillion on top of everything the government already spends, mm-hmm. but it would be partially replacing existing spending. Uh, so I want to read a quote uh, where he deals with this part. He says... A 2012 Congressional Research Service report found that the federal government spends approximately $750 billion each year on benefits for low-income Americans, and that rises to a clean trillion when you factor in state programs. Eliminate all those, and the net figure, so there he's saying the cost of the basic income minus the cost of the eliminated programs, mm-hmm. uh, comes out to about $1.2 trillion needed to pay for a Universal basic income, still a hefty sum. And I have to agree, that's still a pretty hefty sum. Yeah, I think that's a pretty uh, pretty nice understatement. Yeah, yeah, so you could experiment with different payout options and different sure. compensations. So, for example, you could say, well, we're not going to pay people the entire, all the way up to the poverty line, pay everybody almost $12,000. Um, or you could say that, well, we're going to make other cuts to the federal budget to compensate for that that $1.2 trillion. Or you could increase tax revenue on the richest. Uh, th- there are a lot of ways you could slice the pie to make it work. But no matter what, it, somebody's going to feel the squeeze. This would be a, an expensive thing to pay for. Mm-hmm. And somehow you would have to find that money. Right. So one of the things that the Ontario pilot program will have to find out is whether or not, again – the money invested into the program ends up creating a better return, not just not just financially, which obviously that would be important, but obviously in the quality of life of the people, the program is meant to help. If it's not helping them, that's a huge problem. If it's helping them, but it's really expensive, that, that might be a problem people are willing to talk about and uh, and and overcome through whatever means, whether it's an increase in taxes or something else. Oh, sure. And and while we're talking about those kind of sociological and psychological issues, uh, is this going to make people just quit their jobs? That's the other big question, isn't it? Because economists debate about this. On, on one hand, you've got this view that it sort of makes sense. Think about this. Anytime you subsidize something, you encourage it. Well, so if you, that's, if that's you, kind of the point. Right. <laughs> so if, you, if you pay out for something, you, you are fostering uh, more of that thing. And so uh, the basic income subsidizes, according to these people, subsidizes unemployment or underemployment. And so you can just sort of expect if you subsidize that, you're going to get more of it. But then again, the basic income isn't just paid to people who don't work. It's paid to everybody, even those who do work. And in most formulations, it's not a whole lot. People are going to want more. It's just 
enough so that people can have some kind of security, something to work with. I, I think if you were to argue that everyone in the United States, let's, going with the example we had mentioned earlier, everyone in the United States gets $12,000, I think the vast majority would say that's going to help, but I can't live on $12,000. $12,000, like the poverty line – Yes, you could you could maybe get your your basic necessities, but it's at a level that I think most people, particularly most people who are capable of listening to this podcast, since presumably you have some kind of, of electronic access. and yeah. have a yeah. cell phone yeah. or something. Yeah, you've got something that allows you to do this. You probably would not feel like that would be a uh, a quality of life you would be you would be comfortable uh, comfortable with. Yeah, you would yeah. definitely want something better than that. So the $12,000 I think for most people would be that's that's my baseline i want more than that it's hard to imagine a vast population of people who say that's going to be enough for me and i'm just going to sit on my butt and not do anything also i i think i think this argument puts forth a, an assumption that i don't entirely agree with which is that most people left to their own devices wouldn't do anything if they could get around if they could get by without it this I is think, certainly a, a widespread assumption a lot of people think this about other people yeah. huh. i think most folks find at least some satisfaction in doing something it may not be that you love your job i'm lucky i love the job i do uh, and i realize there are people who aren't in that situation but i think a lot of people get at least some sense of satisfaction in doing something and earning something from the activity they're doing. Yeah, well, no matter what you do, there's dignity and honest work. Yeah. Uh, there's a really excellent piece in The Atlantic from the, the July-August 2015 issue called A World Without Work, in which the, the writer, Derek Thompson, spoke to a bunch of psychologists who pointed out that, that most people, and most Americans in particular, base a pretty large part of their identity and their social sphere and their mental health on their jobs that like be being productive and, and working toward a common goal are are pretty basic things that humans like doing. Anecdotally, I mean, how many of your conversations with someone new have the question? So what do you do? Oh, yeah. one of, like that's one of the first things that you ask people. Now, all of this is to say that uh, that the basic income is is one approach to trying to. Uh, to solve a, a problem and not necessarily the right approach. We don't know yet. We'd have to see. And it may not be the right approach for all places at all times. It may be that it works for certain countries or communities, but not everyone. And we certainly aren't advocating that a basic income goes out to everybody right now unless it turns out that, yes, this is the best best way to solve this problem and we all benefit as a result. One of the reasons we're bringing this up, this topic up, is what we talked about at the beginning. We're getting to a point where there are very real concerns over a growing population about jobs being eliminated as a result of automation. So it may turn out that something like basic income ends up being a necessity, not just for populations that are disenfranchised right now, but a growing population of people who were contributing to society, were hardworking people who have nowhere to work anymore because advances in technology have eliminated the need for people to work. Right. So we, we talked about this in the episode about will robots steal our jobs. But the, the basic principle is that automation makes human labor sets obsolete. Mm -hmm. And this isn't new. Uh, you know, in previous centuries, 
farm workers were replaced by farm machinery Mm -hmm. and traditional weavers were replaced by the mechanization of the textile industry. Uh, But it does appear to be accelerating now. And Mm -hmm. it's not only accelerating, it's making different types of human skills less and less comparatively valuable. So there used to be this set of skills you could separate off from all of the mechanical and menial labor and say, you know what, those are safe. Like, you might worry that a job welding parts on an assembly line, think, well, you're doing a kind of routine task that's the same motions over and over again. I think a robot could probably do that job. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, you'd say, well, you know, a person answering service calls for a tech support line or something like that, that needs to be a human, of course, because, you know, they've got to have language skills and stuff like that. Turns out it probably doesn't have to be a human. A human might be better at it in certain cases, but you can design a computer program to handle lots of different kinds of tech support calls. Well, and until recently, I would argue that having a robot uh, working within a warehouse environment to retrieve one of thousands of different types of products to bring it in and pack it up and send it out would have been impractical. Yeah, because cause think about the different range of skills there. You gotta you gotta have recognition of the item you're looking for. Mm-hmm. You've got to be able to move around and pick things up. Different types of locomotion and manipulation. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of different skill sets that robots aren't very good at, or uh, haven't been very yeah. good at up until nowish. Yeah, yeah, and if you see an Amazon warehouse now, you you will probably see a lot of happy-go-lucky robots running around and not so many humans anymore. Most of the robots are actually robotic shelves. Uh-huh. Like the like the products are on the robot. And the robot comes to the area where the uh, the product needs to be moved off of the shelf onto like an assembly for for packing and and shipping. Yeah, it's uh it's amazing, and we're seeing things also in. Other industries, like we're we're seeing a growing concern in uh, in things like the trucking industry. Yes, exactly. That that's a very possible automated uh, job in the in the not too distant future. A huge number of human beings practice professions that involve driving cars. That's mm-hmm. a, the mm-hmm. main part of their profession: transportation, logistics, trucking. Uh, cab drivers. It, it, once you see how good Google's driverless cars are you can quickly begin to see the problem when these millions of people are suddenly out of work because right. they've yeah. been replaced by self-driving cars. And it's and it's easy for, for people like us to sit around and go like, well, it's better for you in the long run because the types of wear and tear that your body goes through when you're when you're sitting in a vibrating piece of machinery all day are are terrible. They're, it's it's honestly not good for you. Right. That's for, cold comfort to a person but who's just who's, lost who, their job. Exactly, right. exactly. Who needs to, needs to put food on, food on the table. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, at the beginning of this episode, I mentioned that study uh, by by Fry and Osborne, uh, the Oxford researchers who who essentially they took a huge list of occupations, basically a comprehensive list of U.S. occupations and tried to characterize the skills that are required for each of those occupations according to how easy they would be to automate in the near future. And specifically, this is with reference to advances in three different fields. Uh, machine learning, big data, and mobile robotics. And and these are three fields that where it seems that automation is pushing the limits of what types of skills are available to machines that only humans could do before. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, and, and we see news every single day about new developments in artificial intelligence that end up telling us, well, 
sure in this particular case it's something very specific. I'm thinking right now of Google defeating top Go players. That Go is a game that for a long time people thought humans are going to be the best at this game for a really long time. It's just yeah, so yeah. complicated. We thought it wasn't was going to be cute? another 20 years. Yeah. Wasn't it cute when, when people were saying, well, yeah, now computers can beat the best human chess player every time, but they won't do it with Go. Yeah. Well, because <laughs> there were just so many more possibilities of moves in Go compared to chess that the thought was that if, in fact, everyone continued with the brute force approach. Yeah, it's a lot less linear than something like chess. Yeah, it just it was just one of those things where the, the number of possible moves is so great that that brute force will never work. Yeah, it's, well, it's, th- it's th- easy. It's easy for a human and difficult for a machine. And it was based upon a presumption that brute force was going to be the way it worked. Right, right. Machine learning was not necessarily something that people were thinking about at that point. So, but that, that illustrates that things that we previously thought were completely outside the domain of machines may not be. Uh, and, and I, I think it was in that Oxford paper, uh, that, that Oxford paper was mentioned in the Atlantic piece that, that I was talking about. Uh, they, they said that, that some fields that, that we would be very surprised to find can be done by machines, like 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 psychology. Uh, mm-hmm. As as it turns out, people can sometimes even be more honest talking to a robot psychologist than a human psychologist or an AI psychologist, rather, I should say, uh, because they're not afraid of human judgment. Yeah, I'm just imagining a robot psychologist saying, tell me about your toaster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one thing they definitely point out in their paper is they they quote previous research in economics that had essentially looked at the same problem, but from a few years earlier. Mm -hmm. And these Earlier researchers had said, well, look, there are a few things that are not going to be done by machines anytime soon because they just require, you know, basically human human intelligence that cannot be substituted by machines. And examples they gave were recognizing handwriting and driving cars. Oh, goodness, my gracious. Yeah. And what do you know? Just just a few years later. Now, that is hilarious that somebody said that. And they weren't dummies. These were very smart people who made those kinds of statements. Well, again, you can. I know our show is all about talking about the future, but as it turns out, really knowing what's going to happen in the future is uh, is is next to impossible. In fact, I should just say it's impossible because you cannot anticipate what is uh, what what is what will happen. I mean, there, there things, will happen. Yeah, there will be yeah. there will be things that happen where whether it's an enormous aha moment or just a series of developments that reach to this point where you didn't have any way of anticipating that when you were making your predictions. That happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't necessarily always happen for for good either. Sometimes it happens, and things you were counting on are now impossible. Yeah. So here's the question: Assuming that this this set of circumstances continues, and we see growing automation, and we see that fewer and fewer people are able to work jobs to get money. What does that mean in a big picture kind of way? Yeah, that's a good question. And that's sort of why we brought this up in this episode. It's mm-hmm. how we get back to the basic income because a number of, I'm sure you've, you guys have encountered this, a number of uh, experts in robotics, artificial intelligence, sort of computer scientists and other technologists have talked a lot about the basic income. And when I first started noticing this phenomenon, I thought it was kind of weird, but now it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. And I think it makes sense because they're the people doing the research that is going to make something like this possibly necessary in the future. Just one example, there was a February 2016 interview 
uh, with the Huffington Post, uh, with the AI expert Moshe Vardy from Rice University. And Vardy said this, Our current economic system requires people to either have wealth or to work to make a living, with the assumption that the economy creates jobs for all those who need them. If this assumption breaks down, and progress in automation is likely to break it down, I believe, then we need to rethink the very basic structure of our economic system. For example, we may have to consider instituting basic income guarantee, which means that all citizens or residents of a country regularly receive an unconditional sum of money in addition to any income received from elsewhere. Uh, and and I think that's one example of this general trend I talk about. I'm sure you guys have observed this yeah. too. Oh, yeah. absolutely. And like I said, you know, this is if you think this sounds like a kind of a stepping stone toward the Star Trek economy, that's exactly the way I think of it too, is that ultimately if you continue down this road far enough, you eventually come to the conclusion of, well, if all work is being done by machines and all things that once were scarce are now relatively easy to access, what is the point of money? And if there's no way to get it and there's no real expense and you know no real reason to spend it, do we need it anymore? And then what happens next? And that's what we kind of explored in our Star Trek uh, episode. This one is more of a, all right, well, let's look, let's look at that period of, of, of chaos mm-hmm. between now and what could be one possible future. Not, you know, of course, the Star Trek e- economic future may never come to pass. We may never see that particular version enter uh, anything resembling reality. Uh, but it seems like a nice shtick. Uh, and, and I'll say again, as I have said before, that, you know, if it leads to to fabulous jumpsuits for everyone, then I'm into it. <laughs> um, but OK, so so there's there's that period of chaos that we're talking about. There there are so many unknowns in this in between time. Um, but there are a few historical precedences that we can kind of look at, uh, like during the Depression era here in the United States. The National Works Progress Administration hired some 40,000 artists and writers to produce cultural work. Uh, you know, no, anything from, from films to, to paintings to, uh, to travel brochures and all, all kinds of stuff like highly that. Highly offensive performance art. Yeah, yeah, of course. I pretty much find all performance art highly <laughs> offensive. <laughs> uh, and, and, and also a, a little bit more on the, on the end of that chaos, um, in, in Youngstown, Ohio, the dismantlement of the steel industry in the 1970s has created this, uh, this, this long-term kind of terrifying space in which a, a struggling but but increasingly strong community has come together to create um to, to create art and to create a, a for hire workforce and mm. and it, and it's fascinating it's a fascinating case study yeah so i mean it's i think the, the what the takeaway here is that we are seeing people come up with potential um if not solutions, at least measures to try and offset some of the problems we currently have and ones that we know are on the horizon. There's no denying that it is going to happen. The question is, how do we respond to it? Basic income is one of those strategies, not necessarily the one that's going to win out. So I've got a question I want to ask you guys, and it's pretty much the same question I asked in my House Stuff Works Now video, but I, I think it's an important one. Let's let's say you're in a middle camp on your opinion about the basic income. You can see the appeal in the the technological obsolescence future. So you accept 
okay, if robots can do 95% of human jobs better than humans can, and most of us cannot find paying work, yet there's all this wealth in the world because the robots can do all the labor for us, yeah, then, of course, basic income makes sense. So you accept that. But at the same time, you say, well, now, right now, we do not have justification for such an expensive system. How do you know when it's time? When it's your job. You know, oh. like, how do you know, <laughs> how do you know when you've reached the threshold of, of, uh, technological wealth and human skill obsolescence? After we hire, after we elect our first artificially intelligent representative to the House or a huh. Congress person, or president, I think at that point we're all going to have to agree. That, okay, we we need to fix this for for people, or else we won't be around for much longer. It is an interesting question. Like, yeah. what is what is the you know when does the thermometer fill up with red? Right, and right. you say let's throw the switch. Yeah. Um, honestly, I that that's an impossible question for me to answer. I, I honestly don't know enough, and being the Person I am, I'm probably more likely to throw that switch earlier sure. than other people are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, I also recognize the monumentally difficult task of actually providing for this approach and that it's one that would require some people to potentially make some pretty hefty sacrifices uh, in order for other people to do well. And that's not kind of a system that we have like our system doesn't reward altruism. Uh, we have people who are very altruistic, very charitable, who are great philanthropists, but that's they're out- kind of outliers in the yeah, system, right? Exactly. Now. Yeah. And and I don't I don't fault the system necessarily for that. I don't think that our system is uh, is good or bad. I think of it as mostly amoral, uh, not immoral, but amoral. And uh, those amoral systems they run the world, man. They do. <laughs> and and it's just a question of of where do you where in your philosophy does this idea make sense? Well, something I think I can or I can at least hope we all agree on is that it does make sense to run test cases and pilot projects. Absolutely. Like, like what uh, it sounds like Ontario is uh proposing here. So you might not say, well, uh, it's time to throw the switch and put the entire country on this plan, but to test it within some communities and see what happens. Yeah, yeah. And, and if yeah. It, even if it doesn't turn out well, it's good to have that knowledge and understand how it plays out in uh-huh. practice. And it could also lead to to better policies about uh, like like vaguely related issues, like like increasing um, in- increasing the minimum wage. Yes. So it may be one of those things where uh, after after a pilot program has run its course. Financial experts take a look at it. Sociologists take a look at it, and they all say whether or not there was a net benefit or a net net uh, detriment to this program. Mm-hmm. And then from that point forward, you could say, "All right, well, if based upon the results here, do we want to run another pilot program somewhere else? Find out if, in fact, this is something that is common to all areas. Maybe it's one of those things that we see works well in one region but not in another." Sure. And then if it doesn't work, what are our all what are the alternatives that we can look into because we still have a problem. So if that's not the solution and yeah. it may not be, we need to find something else that is. Yeah. And in direct answer to your question, Joe, I, I would I would say that there's probably a particular percentage of the population, uh, a percentage which should be chosen by people who are way better at economics than I am, um, at, at which like like beyond which 
uh, we, we're going to need something like this. You mean so- a, 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 a percentage of our population uh, losing their jobs to automation. Okay. So maybe you could say, like, if we reach a point where there's X percent of the people who are unemployed, actively seeking work and cannot get it, this then, is time for us to realize. Yeah. Yeah. Flip that switch. I yeah. guess so. Yeah. I mean, at, at, at least to see if it, in fact, will work. Yeah. I mean, if it's one of those things where it's said, all right, so... um. We're going to be strapped for cash for a little while because we tried this program and it didn't work. So we had to figure out something else. I mean, that's. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I mean, let, let, let's do the testing now. Yeah. Uh, w- while we're still at a relatively low percentage of, of people who are directly losing their jobs because of robots. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but but let's work towards it. Right. Yeah. And yeah. also remember, don't blame the robots. They're just doing their jobs. I'm sorry. They didn't, They're just doing they your jobs. They to be built. <laughs> yeah. They're just trying to do what they're told. Yep. And, uh, and eventually, if you do blame them, they might say, I'll show you why you created me. So on that cheerful note, let us conclude this episode of Forward Thinking. I'm curious to hear what you guys think. Do you think there's some alternative approach that works better? Are you all for basic income? At what level would you argue that would be an effective uh, uh, you know, measure? Or is it just one of those things that you think will never work? I'm curious to hear what you think. And also, if you have any suggestions for future episodes, write those in and send it uh, in an email. The uh, little address thing that you can put in in the to field is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com. Or you can drop us a line on Twitter or Facebook. At Twitter, we are fwthinking. Just type fwthinking into Facebook's search bar and we'll pop right up. You can leave us a message there and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Got menopause? We've got you. Hi, Jackie here, founder of ExoJackie. Feel supported throughout your menopause journey and beyond with our organic protein powders and symptom relief boosts. Formulated to keep bones and muscles strong, ExoJackie products help reduce bloating, hot flashes, and weight gain. Enjoy 20% off with promo code EXOPODCAST. Shop now at exojacqui.com. Made for women by women. Get in zone, AutoZone. Welcome to AutoZone. What are you working on today? Brakes? We can save you 15% on that. 
We have OE quality Duralask brake pads and rotors in stock, ready for pickup or delivery. We also have calipers, brake fluid, tools, and anything else you'll need to do the job right. When you get Duralask pads and rotors together, you'll save 15%. It's just part of what makes us America's number one brakes destination. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bear Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.